We want, to, we want to tackle this last topic here in our series, and uh, before we do, we want to pray. So let's, let's talk to God for a moment. Let's pray. God, thank you very much for the opportunity we've had this semester to study your word, to think specifically through the texts that help us understand your church, how it operates, what's necessary to make it work, how it's to be organized, how we understand leadership, what the church is commissioned to do. All these things are important for us just to round out our understanding of what the Bible has to say about these important systematic topics that we've been working through. So thanks for this, and thanks for this team that has been uh, faithful and persistent getting through this material, and many of them have been through many semesters here with me on Thursday nights. Thank you for their uh, faithfulness in semester after semester. I pray, God, as we continue our study, Lord willing, that you allow us to have a, a more capable handle, a more accurate grasp on the things that would help us to be the kinds of Christians that can properly teach and lead and direct people, especially those new in the faith, to understand these topics that are so critically important to you and helpful for us. So God, thanks for this team. Give us a good good time together here this last night as we study these topics together, uh, these particular issues as it relates to the church and what's necessary for it to run. And I pray you would allow us to have great understanding and unanimity and, and, and harmony and oneness here in our room tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. No charts, no graphics, just a straight ahead outline tonight. I know. I know. That's a bummer, isn't it? Next semester, we'll get back to the charts. You had one last week, so that was good. Hey, I want to talk about this as it relates to how the church both as a diagnostic and a necessity. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the measure of church health. And it's not the measure of church health, but it is certainly a measure of church health. Let's jot these two words down, sacrifice and generosity. Sacrifice and generosity. These are critical elements in the church, uh, two of which uh, not only are expressions of our health as a body, and not only that, just even our, our understanding of what it means to be a Christian, but uh, certainly is a cornerstone and a, and a, and a, a, a uh, the synchronon, one of the, one of the elements that makes it necessary uh, to be in place. It has to be in place for the church to be what it is. But let's think personally for just a second about this, uh, and just in terms of imitating God. You want to call yourself a Christian, you want to say you're a follower of Christ, then these two elements, uh, two, two, two characteristics, two virtues need to be a part of who you are. Because without them, we uh, have very little claim to say that we are followers of Christ. We imitate Christ in this regard. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it says that we are to be imitators of God as beloved children. We should be like Dad. We should be like our Heavenly Father. We should reflect His character. And then this word that's so central to the biblical virtues uh, is always at the top of the list. He, he speaks of love. We ought to live a life. Uh, that's his, his wonderful uh, and repeated metaphor for the Christian life. We walk the, the patterns, the habits, the habitual things that we do in our lives. It ought to be that we see love in our lives. That's not emotional. That's not sentimental. Uh, it can involve those things, but it's primarily a verb that looks like this. As Christ loved us and at the apex of what it means to love us, gave himself up for us. Starting with the whole Philippians 2, he existed in the form of God. He didn't regard equality with God a thing to be hung on to. He emptied himself, became a human being to live and die in our place. That kind of sacrifice he calls a fragrant offering, sacrifice to God. That's what you ought to be imitating. You claim to follow Christ, people ought to be able to look at you and say, there's someone who is sacrificial and someone who is generous because they are a person that reflects God, does what God does, all under the umbrella 
of the word love. So we look for that in our church. We can't have a church without it, and we certainly need to see it if we make a claim to be a godly person. To go back to one of the most fundamental verses in all of the Bible, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave. You look at God the Father, he gives his son, Jesus gives his life. Uh, These are important templates for us so that we would be better. That's the whole point of love. Love means I sacrifice and I'm generous for the good of someone else. I'm thinking about their well-being. I'm doing it for their good. And of course, if you haven't heard this, this is a great parallel. And of course, it came thousands of years after the Old Testament and a thousand years, you know, thousand and a half years after the New Testament. But the numbering of First John and the book of John makes a nice parallel. First John 3.16 and John 3.16, speaking of the same issue, take a look at this text. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone says, now notice where he goes with this, if, he says he has the, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. We're going to imitate God. We need to be people of love. We're people of love. We'll give our lives up. Specifically, he says, we give our lives up for the good of other people, for the good specifically, at least in priority, to the brothers, to the people of God. How do we do that? Well, one of the first things he goes to in, in describing this in 1 John 3 is our possessions, our material possessions, the things that we have. How do we relate to our money? So in imitating God, We need to ask ourselves, do we reflect the generosity and sacrifice of God? And our relationship to our money is a key element in this. Secondly, it is something that when we show that we are generous and sacrificial with what we possess, which certainly goes beyond our finances, but let's start there because it's the most poignant diagnostic of our spirit, how we deal with our money. It certainly shows that we trust God. You look at the principle and the the topic of money in the Bible, it always seems to come back to this. Uh, for instance, Proverbs eleven twenty four. here's this element of risk involved, one who gives freely. Now, if you're worried about your income, if you're worried about your security, if you're worried about how much money you have, you don't give freely, see? But if you give freely, it says, here's the principle, uh, one does give freely and he grows all the richer, another withholds what he should give, and he only suffers want. He's in constant need. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. The principle in Scripture always dares us to be generous and sacrificial, even back to the picture and template of the incarnation, because as Christ gave and emptied himself and made himself of of nothing, no no repute, uh, that passage ends with, and then God highly exalts him and gives him a name that's above every name. Our relationship... Uh, to these virtues of sacrifice and generosity are played out in our lives in terms of our, our trust in God, knowing that if we do what he asks us to do, God will take care of our need. And, and that's the principle we see repeated over and over again. Another text in this regard, I mean, look at this very strong appeal to us to give, to be generous. Give and it will be given to you. It'll be given to you in a, in a way, he says, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, it will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use in putting it out and giving it out, it will be measured back to you. To the extent that you are willing to give and sacrifice, and of course we could talk about time and effort and prayer and all of that, but let's start with the most fundamental, basic, and poignant, and I mean that, it's a painful part to let go of, our money. That's a picture of whether we're imitating God in our character and whether we're trusting God that he'll take care of us even when we generously give. 
one more in this regard. We could go on all night with these texts, but I just want to give you some top text in this regard. He says in 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 18, he says, don't set your hopes, he's speaking those to, ha- who, to those who have material uh, you know, money in their bank account. Don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but set your hope on God. Because God, not your bank account, here's a principle we see throughout the scripture, is the one who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He says to those uh, that he just said, don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. You're to do good, be rich in good works. That's what you ought to see about amassing in your life. How good can I be in terms of doing good works, being generous and ready to share? So when I give, it's a risk. It's, it's a bit of a bet, if you will, to say, okay, if I let go of something that in this world provides me security and I'm willing to be generous with it, uh, I have to now trust God who, according to this text, is the one who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He is the source of it all. Therefore, this reflects my trust in God. Thirdly, when I look at the health of the church and I see that we're generous, sacrificial people, I say, okay, we're, we're acting like God, Christians, little Christ, then we're doing what we ought to do. And we're also ex- ex- dis- displaying our trust in God. Thirdly, I'm understanding this about our church. We're avoiding the archetypal sin of the universe, selfishness, self-centeredness, having me as the target. That's the problem. That's why we don't have a lot of talk in the church about self-esteem. That's your basic design. You're wired in your fallen flesh to take care of you and look after yourself. And in the Bible, virtue is trying to take us and take our focus outside of ourselves and to live for God. And in doing so, he says, give to my people and give to others. I have to now avoid selfishness by demonstrating that in terms of my giving. Text in this regard that may be helpful. Luke chapter 12. I know this, if you want to add some other words to this, when I am not generous and sacrificial, the text says that's a kind of covetousness or greed. Take care and be on guard against all covetousness. This sense that I got to have more, I got to wrap myself in the protection of stuff. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And and unfortunately, our natural tendencies, our proclivities in life are to try to do that. Our temptation is to do that, to guard, uh, not to guard rather, but to uh, amass in our lives that layer of protection and having around me what I think will provide me security. And more than that, it's not just a trust matter. It's an issue of pleasure and spending it on what I want. Now, this text is classic and there's so much here. I wanted to turn you there. So if you would, uh, I want to look at a little bit of what's going on before this verse. And after this verse, Jesus tells a very um, instructive uh, parable that we should look at together tonight, Luke chapter 12. So let's turn there and let's get a little bit of why this statement, at least contextually, came out of Christ's mouth. Luke 12, 13. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He's looked up to as a virtuous man, a just man, a good man. They see him as a faithful rabbi and they say, well, you're the guy, you'll be fair. Uh, Help me settle this financial dispute with my brother, right? But he said to him, Christ says to this guy, man, who made me judge or arbiter over you? Like a lot of Jesus' statements, it's a bit cryptic, it's a bit sarcastic. There's several levels to that statement we don't have time to look at. But you should always look at Christ's response and see um, the irony in, in what he says. Because, of course, he is the judge and arbiter over him. Verse 15. He says, though, take care, here's our verse, and be on guard against all covetousness. Why are you fighting over the inheritance of your parents with your brother? Is it that your heart just has to have this stuff? Are you greedy? He says, your life doesn't consist in the abundance of his possessions. You can't find life there. You won't find security there. You won't even find happiness there. 
Verse 16. And then he told him the parable saying, a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. That's where that line comes from. Verse 20. But God said to him, and you don't see God saying these kind of pejorative words very often, right? Here's God. He says, fool, you're a fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he, is, and he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you'll put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't have storehouses or barns, yet the Lord feeds them, God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? That's risky, that's trust. If I'm not amassing this, this brings security and pleasure and all that. Verse 25, and which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you're not able to do a small thing like that, right? Then why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They don't toil, they don't spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink. Do not be worried. Now, the, of course, you've got to figure out what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink, right? It's not about seeking here as defined, at least in the parallelism of this particular text. It's that sense of, of having to have it, that, that kind of worry and anxiety of it all. And he says, don't, don't, don't sweat it. Don't be worried. Don't be anxious over this. Verse 30, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your father knows that you need them. Instead, it's an issue of priority, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, which is a much bigger, more permanent, more important and valuable thing than amassing wealth in your silos and and your barns. Sell your possessions. You should hold the, the world's possessions loosely and give to the needy. Be generous and sacrificial. Provide for yourselves, uh, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches or moth destroys where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let's add this one as a, as a, uh, as a fourth one. When I'm showing that I'm holding the world's goods loosely or more actively, I'm generous and sacrificial with the things that I have. I'm expressing my value in something much more important in eternity. Now, like a lot of things in the Bible, and I've mentioned this many times from this platform, but when it comes to the issues of pleasure and power, right, and and possessions and things like that, God is not against those things, right? He's against us trying to find them in the temporal realities of this life, right? He's not concerned with really you amassing wealth here. He's concerned with you storing up treasure for yourself there, He's not really concerned about your lot in life in terms of of reputation here. He's concerned about you having a concern about your reputation there. He's not concerned about what kind of authority you have over people down here. What he's really concerned about is what you're going to do and how you'll rule and reign with him there. In other words, our desires, our impulses for the things that we want, right? In in a way, the core desires aren't wrong. It's how we seek to, uh, to express them and where we seek to find them. So it isn't that we say, well, you know what, I want to take a vow of poverty because God's into poverty. 
Now, the idea is what God would have us do in demonstrating the relative small value that we place on the earthly things, I'm showing that what I really want is to have a place and a name and a position and an inheritance there. That values what's eternal. So in my life, in your life, a healthy church is going to be measured by the congregation living out a life that imitates God. We're sacrificial. We're willing to give. We're willing to meet needs. We trust God, not our bank accounts. We're not about spending all of our pleasure or all of our stuff, rather, our resources on our own pleasure. And really what we're concerned about is something far more important and transcendent than the things money can buy in this life. Okay, that's where we start the diagnostic of how important it is and how you relate to the primary virtues of sacrifice and generosity, sacrificial generosity. The number one diagnostic and the way we see that, the way we can measure that is through your relationship with your bank account, with your money, with your income, okay? So we want to spend some time, and this will take some time, dealing with how that is expressed, number two on your outline, by your giving to the church. Let's start with that. We'll certainly touch on giving elsewhere, But the church, by the way, you can see how I set this up even in the introduction in our prayer tonight. The church can't function without that. We cannot, we can't, we can't exist without, without Christians giving. Uh, But really we can't be healthy without Christians that are generous and sacrificial. So these two go together. But let's think this through and start with some of the practical uh, issues, the, the pragmatics of this as it relates to the principle. We can see the principle of giving on many levels in the Bible, but let's start with the most practical one. Let's jot this down, the principle, and then we'll go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and read several verses here in the middle of this chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 9. Worth writing down, I would think. So let's, let's do that. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and then look at it. Please don't look at me. Look at your Bibles. Let's open our Bibles and check this out. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Hey, by the way, every time we open the Bible, you do understand we are held accountable for everything we read and study in here. You know that, right? You understand that? If this is a game, I don't know why any of us are here. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. I don't want to do this, right? I don't know why you'd want to do this. Unless, in fact, there is a God who's revealed himself and inscribed his truth on the pages of the Bible, a Bible which, by the way, you will stand naked before God one day and give an account for everything you've heard, read from it or expressed or taught from it. See? And sometimes I think we forget how important this is. If we don't understand that one day our lives will be evaluated by whether or not we lived our lives in accordance with the Word of God, right? Then all of this is for naught. We should just, we shouldn't waste our time with this. We could watch TV or rent a movie tonight or do something else. But if this is something that is, as the Bible says it is, something that we will all be judged by, and I mean Christians, it, it's, it be, the judgment begins with the household of God, right? That when we die, we face the bema seat of Christ. You understand that? And we'll all be held accountable for this. I, I just don't want you to be lulled into, like I see so often, you know, this sense of it, this really is irrelevant or doesn't matter. Man, it matters. I hope you understand that. First Corinthians chapter 9, verses 7 through 14. The Bible says, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Okay, those are obvious examples, right? We're going to have somebody in the Marine Corps. We're going to pay for his, you know, his meals. We're going to take care of his clothing. We're going, to, you know, we're going to pay for his boots. Who plants a vineyard, right? If you're going to work in the vineyard, of course, you're going to take part of that crop and you're going to eat it and feed your family with it. Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Well, of course, the shepherd drinks the milk from the flock. Do I say these things on human authority? What he's talking about here, we'll see in a second, is the relationship of people in the church giving to support those who lead in the church. 
He says, I don't say these things on human authority. Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. By the way, this is a hermeneutical masterpiece here, in, especially in our day when people so badmouth the law. How many of you gals are in our women's Bible study in, in the Galatians study? I hope we're learning, right, that, that the law is applicable. We understand that we are under grace, and by that we understand that in no way my life by keeping the law merits a position in the family of God. But look at what he's doing here by employing the Old Testament law and showing that the morality of the Old Testament law should be our guide. And not only that, we have to live under the authority of the Word of God as it's expressed in the law of Moses and every other statement in the Scripture, and that we have to then curtail our lives or adjust our lives or tailor our lives, shape our lives by the morality of the law. And he goes on to say, listen, it's not about ox, oxen, is it? And if you want to read the Bible one-dimensionally, you can do that. But this isn't just making sure you, you've got a muzzle on the ox so he can eat the grain while he's treading out the grain. He says it's not just for oxen that God is concerned, is it? Does, does he not, verse 10, certainly speak for our sake? These are New Testament Christians here, right? In, in the city of Corinth, which was the Orange County of Asia Minor. It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope, what, of having some of the food that he's plowing, and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we've sown spiritual things among you, here's the principle now, is it too much if we reap material things from you? For if others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we've not made use of this right as missionaries, they didn't, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ just like we do in our missions program. We don't charge people when we go into a mission setting with non-Christians for that. Uh, but he's setting up the principle for how the church at Corinth should operate. Verse 13, do you, not those, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and that those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial altar, offerings rather? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. Okay, that's the principle, just to start right there. Now, there's a lot of verse quoting that goes on when it comes to giving in the Bible, but if you want to talk about a church setting and your offering to that church, which the church can't exist without it, and we can't even be godly, we can't reflect God, we can't live the Christian life as God designed without it, here's where the principle is found, right? And that is this, that in the church, when you are spiritually blessed by the organization, the program, the leaders, the pastors, the ministry directors, it is your obligation, see, to support them financially. That is the required biblical principle traced all the way back to the Mosaic law. And in vogue, according to this text, that's why I say this is a hermeneutical masterpiece, because it shows us how the whole Bible fits together to have a bearing, an authoritative bearing on our lives. That when we pass the plate, if you do not participate... Right? You are now in disobedience to the whole tenor of Scripture from the beginning to the end as it relates to you reaping spiritual benefit from the leaders of your church without responding in material uh, recompense or, or some kind of quid pro quo, the payment of that. Now, that's the principle. Okay? The requirement, it should be enough just to read that text and to understand the requirement. But let's go to this text once you jot it down. The requirement for everyone is found in Galatians chapter 6. What you won't find is the non-Christian in the mission field, the principle at least, though Paul states that it could be enforced, is not enforced by Paul in the mission uh, field or on the, in the context of evangelism. He doesn't want to charge for the evangelistic message that he gives out. But in the church, clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he stated the principle as clearly as it could be stated, stated all the way, stretching all the way back 
to the Mosaic law and the morality and the principles in the law. Now, of course, this is required from beginning to end. Financial giving is required in this context of the, of the spiritual community from the beginning. But let's look at it now from Paul in Galatians chapter 6. Let's start in verse 5. Just to show you why verse 6 is there, let's start in verse 5. For each will have to bear his own load. And right there you could say, ha, huh, great. You know, Mike, you want to teach Bible. That's fantastic. But you can, you know, cut lawns on the side and, you know, get, get your money. So you should be taking care of yourself, right? We all have to work for our income and you can do this all you want, but bear your own load. Now he responds in verse 6 saying, well, let me just make this clear. When it comes to that, the marketplace paycheck that we all get, I say you all get, doesn't apply to those that lead in the teaching of God's word. Verse 6, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, because that usually comes with a heading in between and a paragraph break, sometimes we don't know why that's such an applicable statement to make once you've just said everyone should be bearing their own load. And he makes that case really strongly to the Thessalonians when he talks about busybodies and people that aren't working. But he says, well, wait, I just want to make it clear. There are some that aren't going to work in the marketplace. And those are the teachers and the leaders in the local church who lead you spiritually and teach you the word of God. You have to take what you earn in the marketplace and you have to support them. Verse 7, keep reading. Let's get more context here. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Now think this through. When we quote that verse, we usually detach it from verse 6, just like we detach verse 6 from verse 5, do we not? And we start thinking about doing all those bad things. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't apply to that, but the immediate context is this. I don't want to give to them. I don't want to give to that, like most people in the church who don't give. I don't want to do that. And then he says this. If you don't, right, there's, there's repercussions. You will, you will reap whatever you sow. Verse 8, the one who sows to his own flesh right, will reap corruption. Now, I understand there's a virtue to that. There's an issue of morality to that. Ethics are involved in that. But the immediate context are the ones who are tempted to say, everyone should bear their own load. I don't want to support those who teach me the word of God. And the requirement here in the text is obvious for everyone. And then even the threat of, hey, there's got to be that, uh, because if you don't, uh, there's a, a corruption that will come. There's penalty to come. There's discipline to come. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. Okay? Now, that's a statement that I understand transcends the immediate context. But clearly, the context should help us recognize that that's certainly one of the applications of this text. And don't grow weary, and I'll show you that I think this uh, continues. The, the concept of money is in this text from verse 5 onward. I'll keep reading, and you'll see it. Don't grow weary in doing good. In doing good, which is part of the good that you do in sacrifice and being generous to support the church, right? don't grow weary in that. For in due season, we will reap if we don't give up. Keep going. Be generous. Give. Sacrificially. Support the local church. Verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let's do good to everyone. Now, what's on my mind from verse number 6? Doing good financially to the leaders who teach me the word. Now he's saying, oh yeah, as you have opportunity, that principle can apply to others as well. There's a requirement here. Now, this one's set up as, as, a, as, as one has opportunity, especially those who are of the household of faith. So I have priority here. But it starts with the requirement in verse 6 that if you're taught the word, you've got to share all good things with those who teach, which is a verbal imperative, by the way, in the Greek language. This is a command. You've got, you got to do that. Now, as you have opportunity, as the door opens and you see a need elsewhere, particularly as it relates to the priority of the body of Christ and brothers and sisters in Christ, meet those needs. And as you can out there, fine, but especially those of the household of faith. So the requirement, it's inescapable. 
you're part of the, of the church, you are required to financially support the church. Can't get around that. I wanted to show, that, show you that as clearly as possible. Now, the recipient of this. Obviously, there's some duality to this. And the duality is often missed. And, and I can give you so many examples of this. People, they don't, they don't get it. I, I just this week had someone talk about uh, writing me, um, you know, people deciding not to give in a particular part of the, of the church year because they don't like what we're doing. So I'm not going to give now, right? That's a one-dimensional focus on who we're giving to. In other words, I'll show my church I'm not going to give because I don't want to be a part of what those leaders are deciding to do. That's sin, okay? And I'll show you why. Not only because there's many reasons it's sin, but it's sinful because of how giving is supposed to be understood, that you're not robbing your pastors of that. Ultimately, as, as Malachi 3 says, you're robbing God in that, right? Why? Because the recipient ultimately is God. Let's turn to Numbers 18 just to show you this principle from back in the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 18, if you're not already there, just to show you the duality of this. Numbers 18, did you find that? As silently as you did? Wow. Numbers 18, verse 21. To the Levites, okay, now think this one through. Here's the example. And I guess you could feel kind of frustrated toward the Levites because you're out there plowing the fields, and guess what the Levites don't do? They don't plow the fields. Why? Because everyone else works in the marketplace in the other 11 tribes, and in the, the agrarian society, they're out plowing the fields and keeping the flocks. But the Levites, they don't. They're, they're, they're living off everybody else, okay? And he says this in verse 21. To the Levites, I've given the tithe, every tithe in Israel, for an inheritance. Their income is not coming from the land. It's coming from you guys. A tenth, that's what tithe means, a tenth of what you you give, right? In return for their service that they do. Their service in the tent of meeting. Same principle. They serve. This is the principle that Paul drew out in 1 Corinthians 9. They serve, you give, they're not in the fields working. They're not, in our case, in some you know, office in front of an Excel sheet you know, doing something to sell a widget or whatever is going on out there. They're there serving the church. Your tithe, your gift in this regard, the tenth from Israel here, is to be given to su- support them. Now, keep reading. Uh, but the Levites shall do the service of the tenth of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations, and among the people of Israel they shall have no inheritance. They're not in the marketplace. They're not in the land. Work, work in the land. For the tithe of the, of the people of Israel, which they present, here's the part I want you to underline, as a contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites as an inheritance. Look at that and build your mental flow chart. The tenth they have to give to the Lord. God says, I have given it to the Levites. See, if you want to, as I've recently heard someone confess the sin of some folk in our church, withholding their giving, right? Because they don't want to give it to the leaders who made a decision they don't like, okay? Is a transgression, not to us primarily and foremost. It's a transgression against God. You don't have the right to do that. Because the gift that you give is given to God, and God then grants it to the leaders of the spiritual assembly. That's how it works. So it doesn't work in any other context to say, well, you know, that's just how I do things. Or in the kind of, I could go on, stop me. But it's, it's, it's and again, I could say this, I know anytime I speak on, on giving, especially on a weekend, it, it, it is such a distasteful reality. But you, you need the training, we need the training on this. Uh, and this has nothing to do, really, ultimately, with, um, with us. It has to do with God's word, with the truth. It obviously has an effect on us. If our church 
does what it's supposed to do, everything changes for the good. Anyway, that's a great text to, to underscore. For the tithe of the people of Israel, verse 24, which they present as a contribution of the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore, I have said of them that they shall have no inheritance among the people of Israel. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, verse 26, Moreover, you shall speak to them and say to the Levites, When you take from the people of Israel the tithe that I have given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall present a contribution from it to the Lord, a tithe of the tithe. Well, that's not fair. They don't have to give. Oh, they do have to give. They give a tithe of the tithe. You see how that works? So we all give. Everyone gives. Everyone's required to give. Even though it seems redundant in the case of those who serve in the temple, that the temple servants have to give to the temple service, they're required to do the same thing everybody in the spiritual community is required to give. Now, of course, Philippians 4, and I say, of course, if you were with us in a, in a recent study in that text, the, the wording here is helpful. As Paul says, now he's a missionary, it's a bit different, but he's received the missionary support from the Philippians, and he says in verse 18, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift that you sent. So you sent something to help my ministry. But he makes it clear, it's a fragrant offering and a sacrifice, generosity and sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. Because as he says elsewhere to the Corinthians, we know you gave yourself first to the Lord, then you gave these gifts that were intended for us, but ultimately they're gifts and offerings to God. So the recipient, there's a duality here. But you need to understand this. I don't know how you think of it. You need to think of it, though, as first and foremost a gift to God, right? That secondly then is entrusted to leaders, and leaders then have a responsibility before God to invest it as good stewards. But the recipient is God. I hope that's helpful and keeps you from transgression in your life. Uh, as it should from mine and everybody else who's on the payroll at any church. Motive. Let's talk about motive. And I've got a little extra space for this because here's where a lot of us go wrong uh, in our motive in giving. And, and I should say because we have a real spiritual problem with our relationship to money, which if I had more time, we could spend more time on. But we need to address that at some point, even if it's briefly tonight. Uh, Psalm 56. I mean, there, there's... Even if you just took the words, and it would be hard because there's so many words used for the monetary gifts in the Bible, which often are in the terms of grain or wave offerings or cattle and and sacrificial animals. But how often you'll find the word thanks, thanksgiving, or gratitude connected with those. And there are some that are even called in the category of the Old Testament sacrifices, the thank offerings. And here's an example. And all I want to show you is that the ultimate motive is one of, of praise and thanksgiving and worship. Psalm 56, 10 through 13. In God, whose word I praise, oh, Bible-centric, it looks like they're a Bible church of some kind. Um, Bible idolaters, that's what we're called. That's the pejorative word for it, which David, I'm sure, smiles at from heaven. In God, whose word I praise, um, I'm sorry, in the Lord, whose word I praise, if we didn't get it the first time, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid, what man can do to me, verse 12. I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. Now notice this. Here's the purpose clause, right? For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. I'm alive. I've been delivered. I haven't fallen. I've stumbled, but I'm not down. All those concepts of him being blessed by God, his response is, I want to perform my vows. I've made decisions based on the fact that God is good to me. I'm going to do things In response to him, the connection of this phrase, which you could search in your software, thank offering or thank offerings, 
right? Here's a response to God. All of our giving, if you want, and we could go on and on about a lot of different positive motives, but we'll look at some negative ones here in a second. Just know that when we give, it's supposed to be an act of worship. We say that in our worship services, obviously, and it's hard when you're doing it online or, you know, automatic deposit from your checks. But at some point, you need to connect your financial giving to the body of Christ, right, to the church of Christ, to some act of thanksgiving, I mean, this is something that God has done to enable you to enjoy your house, your car, whatever you have. The Bible says you are to, in response to what he's done, be giving uh, to him with worship and thanksgiving. He is great. He's the provider of all things. We won't take time to turn there, but Deuteronomy 8, I quote it all the time, verses 17 and 18. We need to be careful that we make the connection between my ability to make a paycheck to God's active involvement in my life. And because I say God allowed me to get educated if I am and to be talented if I am or to be skillful in this thing if I am and he's allowed me to be gainfully employed, all of those things then when I put money into the coffers of the church is a response to what God has done for me. I want to give it with thanksgiving. My motive needs to be, God, you've been good to me. I want to be thankful with this token response of my financial giving to you. Now, Let's talk about some bad motives. I mean, just by way of painting the picture of what we should do, unfortunately, there are a lot of bad motives out there. And I don't even think I should list this one. I wouldn't need to in this group, but you need to for the, for the sake of other people. The whole Protestant Reformation was built on this misunderstanding of giving. You know what the Protestant Reformation was initially, at least the touchstone of it in, in Luther's day was the selling of what? Indulgences. And the indulgences were supposed to do what? Right? When a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. What's the point? There's some kind of salvific response of God when I give. And the way they see it is not, I'm thanking God for what he's done for me, but I'm buying from God some kind of salvation. I'm buying from God some kind of favor. That needs to be condemned as heresy and out of our minds completely. Okay? I am not in any way trying to be saved by my gifts. Uh, Titus 3, 4 through 7, you don't need to turn there. You know the text. Uh, God saved us, not because of our works done in righteousness, but by his mercy. And sometimes we read in passages like, I don't know, um, Acts 9, that Cornelius was a giver and he gave and God blessed him. And now God's going to deliver him uh, by sending Peter to his house and he's going to be saved. And you can make the mistake of thinking, wow, he gave, God saved. Maybe giving is related to salvation. It's not. Clearly it's not. He doesn't save us because of our righteous deeds Uh, even though they may be good deeds. Um, Let's say this too. Psalm 50, uh, verses 9 through 15. These are all sub-points of D. Psalm 50, verses 9 through 15. You're not in any way doing a duty to kind of help things along. Now, I've said it, and perhaps too strongly. The church can't survive without sacrificial, generous Christians. But if that begins in your mind to be, well, I'm helping God out here by my giving, God likes to step in every now and then in the Bible and say, listen, I don't need you. I really don't need you, and I don't need your gifts. And Psalm 50 is a great example of that when he says this, um, if I were hungry, first he start, I guess I should start verse 9. I'm not going to accept a bull from your house or a goat from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. Do you really think the church of Jesus Christ, even this outpost, is going to fold if you don't give? It's not. God owns everything. I could get a call tomorrow from the the CEO of Hobby Lobby, right? And he could say, I just want to write you a big check. That would be nice, right? And good for our church. But 
our church isn't going to fold if you don't give. God is not dependent on your gifts. He doesn't need your gifts. As he says in this text, I own everything. If I were hungry, I'd never tell you. The world in all its fullness is mine. He says, by the way, do I eat the flesh of bulls and drink the, the blood of goats? No. And yet you should offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and you should perform your vows to the Most High. But what's the point? The point is you cannot, number one, think it's going to do anything for you salvifically. Number two, you can't think that in any way you're really helping God along. And I know so many people, particularly when they start to get you know, a little too big for their britches and they do well in, in business and they really think their check is making everything happen, right? And sometimes we can even start to think that. Wow, they are generous givers. It sure is helpful. And I hope, I hope that all works out, that they keep on. We shouldn't think that way as church leaders and you shouldn't think that way as a giver, right? God doesn't need you and he doesn't need your check and he doesn't need your your sacrifices. God can take care of his church without you. So great, don't give, right? Next verse in Psalm 50 was, nevertheless, you should offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving, a humble sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the most high. Doesn't let me off the hook, but it changes my motive. I'm not trying to help God out. I'm not trying to make the church survive. And boy, some people unfortunately carry around that twisted motive. Here's one you should turn to, uh, Matthew 6, Matthew chapter 6. And in our day, we, in our day, this isn't quite the temptation anymore because finances are such a personal and private thing, usually because what we're doing with them is, is uh, ignoble. It's not, it's not exemplary. So we don't want anybody to know about what we're doing with our finances. Uh, we're secretive about them. But there's still some opportunity for this, though it's not perhaps uh, as frequent a temptation as it was in the first century. Here's the point. Verse 1, Matthew 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, right, or to your church or any other place, right, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. What's their reward? People think they're pretty neat, which really, they didn't even really think that in the first century, right? Uh, that's all they're going to get. God's not going to respond. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. What's that? Don't, don't do it for show. Don't let people see it. Don't even let the other side of your body see it so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, some people love that. Oh, I want to give in secret because if it wasn't in secret, it would be embarrassing, right? Uh, that's not the point. The point is, make sure that whatever you do in terms of giving isn't to be seen. Now, again, the temptations in the first century were much more obvious than in ours, particularly because the offering box was out in the open. That's why the widow's you know, might was so, you know, such a lesson as Jesus hung out there talking to his disciples about what she gave. Nevertheless, be careful. Sometimes we can play this game with ourselves, kind of feeling good about how we're giving and you know, impressing ourselves or our spouse or our children or you know, whoever might... Uh, be in the line that sees our giving. Don't give to impress people, not even the people you give to. And that happens too. Um, I could tell you stories, but I won't. Uh, the other one, which I think is much, a much bigger temptation, okay? And, and if you're writing those down, what did I say, to impress people? Are you taking notes here? Uh, to, to, to get any salvation from God, to be saved, to get any, you know, to help God out, help his church out, to impress people. Another bad motive, to get something from God. It may not be salvific, but you want something, okay? Now, here's, you want to see flagrant uh, abuse and violation of this? 
just turn on Christian TV. 90% of Christian TV, uh, it, the, they're, they're not ashamed at all to present that motive. And that is, you give to get, right? Plant the seed of faith. And you give the seed of faith to come back to you 40, 40 fold. Or what, you know, I don't know. I haven't watched enough to be able to quote any of it. And I don't know whose uh, impression that was. But um, it's gross, right, to see this. And that is pandering to this base desire to get God to give back to you by giving. Now, what's the principle in Scripture? God is generous to the generous. He refreshes those who bring a blessing. I get that. But when my motive becomes I'm giving to get back, there's a problem. Because what we're overlooking in that, in that situation... Now, the, the, the telepreacher can get up and quote the verses about sowing and reaping. I get all that. What they're missing is 1 Timothy chapter 6. And there would be a good place to go. Because if I'm giving to get, right, this, now it's starting to feel like Vegas a little bit, right? I want to put the money in because I want a lot more money out. And the problem with Vegas is the problem with a lot of people who are giving in the plate, particularly in response to the TV preachers. And that is they want, they want, they want to be rich. They want, they want a lot more money. And that is patently condemned throughout Scripture. Verse 5, 1 Timothy 6, just to give you the beginning of this pick this up at least. He's talking about people here, constant friction among people, depraved of mind, depraved of truth. This is 1 Timothy 6, 5. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. If I do godly things, then I get money back. I get stuff back. And that is true. There is a profit to godliness. He said to Timothy, right? Jim Nodzo, if you read that article a couple weeks back, uh, you know, you ought to train yourself, work hard for godliness because there's great gain in that, right? I mean, physical exertion and discipline, little profit. Godliness has profit for all things. We'll see there. He's not talking about the principle, and that's what the televangelist will quote. He's talking about the motive. If the motive is, I want to give so that I can get, then I'm putting money in so that I can get money out, and that's my purpose and intention in this, then that's sin. It's wrong. He goes on to say, if they think that's the point, they're missing the point. Here's what the value is. Verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. There's the gain. Not, I got to have more. I want to put money in so I can sow my seed of faith and get tenfold back. That is a desire for more money. What God is looking for is contentment. And when I give, I'm content with what I have left over. I'm content with what I keep in resp- as, as, the, as the remainder from what I've given. And then he goes on to say, listen, you want to talk about contentment. You brought nothing into the world. You can't take anything out of the world either. If we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. Why? Because God is into poverty? No, because this life is short, and it really doesn't matter what your house looks like here. What matters is what your house looks like there. And therefore, we're storing up treasure in heaven. And one way we do that, by the way, is treating this money on earth in a godly, virtuous way. And that is God's calling for sacrifice and generosity. God didn't want to keep Christ at nothing. He wanted to exalt him, but he didn't want to do it in this life. And the preachers, you know, have this over-realized eschatology, we call it in theology, the TV preachers, by trying to get all the promises of exaltation into this life. And God didn't promise us that. He promised that in the next life, depending on your faithfulness, the degree to which he he grants you those things. Anyway, in this life, hey, doesn't matter. You got food and clothing? Be content with that. Here's the problem, verse 9. Those who desire to be rich, there's the key phrase. If you desire to be rich, it's not a sin to be rich. It is a sin to desire to be rich because with that 
comes all these temptations. They fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now, I've been to the televangelist rallies, right? I've sat there in the front rows listening to these guys, and I'm surrounded by a bunch of greedy people that want to be rich, and that's why they're there. I've watched the televangelists pass the plate multiple times in one service, and every time appealing to the basic covetousness of the people in the audience and greed. And if that's the motive, though you can quote principles all night long about sowing and reaping and God being generous to the generous, once that becomes your motive, right, you're in sin because the point is not to give to get. The point is to give generously and be content with what I have left over. For the love of money, there's the problem, verse 10, is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving, look at the words here, desire to be rich, love of money, craving. Some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs, motives. I try to paint a picture of a positive motive by showing you some negative motives. And the only statement of the positive motive was, let's give thankfully, joyfully, out of worship to God. Don't give to get saved. Don't give to get you know, the church by and help them out. Don't give to impress people and don't give to get something back from God. Give because God has given to you. Letter E, the amount. Let's talk about the amount. Now, oh, I've heard you teach on this, Pastor Mike. You've heard me on a weekend give you the shorthand answer to the question, okay? That's what you've heard. It's not as simple as the shorthanded answer to the question. If you think you've heard my answer to this, you probably haven't, okay? Here's the shorthanded answer that I usually give. I say, you must give something, right? You've heard me say that? But what you give, you have to decide that and purpose that in your heart. You've heard me say that? That's the shorthand answer, okay? And I'll stand by that, but it isn't that simple, okay? Not that simple. And I'll tell you why. Because most of the time, people are quoting a lot of things about giving, you know, as you purpose in your heart, in contexts that aren't the support of your local church. They're taking passages about special projects, about giving to the needy in Jerusalem, right, from the Macedonian Christians or the Christians in in Asia Minor, uh, or missionary endeavors, or even in the Old Testament in building projects, okay? When we're talking about the regular giving that is required from you for the people of God that you fellowship with and the spiritual leaders that when you give to God now take stewardship of that money, right, it's not a simple answer there. Now, I can say the new, well, let's just start, let's just jump into this, a couple of things. There are two kinds of offerings, two categories of offerings from beginning to end in the Bible. There are required offerings and there are optional or voluntary offerings. Let's just think in those categories. There are required offerings. You must give them. God requires it of you. And then there are optional or voluntary offerings. For instance, I can walk through the first seven chapters of of Leviticus. You've heard of the grain offering, burn offering, fellowship offering, priest offering, sin offering, trespass, guilt offering. You've heard of all those? What you may not know is that some of those are optional, voluntary, and some of them aren't. The burnt offering is to be given in response to your understanding of your sinfulness, that when you are overcome with that, it's circumstantial. You come and you bring the offering to the priest. The grain offering. At the beginning of your harvest season, you bring your grain offering as a thanksgiving to God that he is the provider of of that. It's not clear there. Most would say it's a voluntary offering. It's an assumed offering. It's an expected offering, but voluntary. Uh, The fellowship and peace offering, most would agree, is a voluntary, clearly stated as a voluntary offering, and it's one that when you get some kind of special or unexpected blessing or some kind of deliverance that you didn't expect, then you come to the temple or you come to the place of worship and you bring the fellowship offering or the peace offering. 
sin offering required. Everybody had to bring it. It's required along with your confession and contrition of sin. When you confess your sin, you see your sin for what it is, you bring the sin offering. Have to give it. The trespass offering or the guilt offering. Right? When there's been some kind of ceremonial uncleanness, which you can avoid, really, if you read through the Bible uh, carefully enough, at some point you're going to have the, the ceremonial uncleanness. And because of the Levitical law, you have to bring those, those offerings. But they're circumstantial. When this happens, bring this offering. Then there are a lot of building projects in the Bible, are there not? Starting in, in the book of Exodus with the construction of the tabernacle. Now, when you read those offerings, here's what you're going to read. Those who purpose to give. Those who want to give. Those who are willing to give. And now you have all these statements about optional gifts. This building project here is about to start, and it's optional. Uh, Solomon builds the temple. David starts collecting and preparing for it. But when Solomon builds the temple, he has an offering, and he says very clearly, those who purpose to give. If God, I mean, the way our, our vocabulary in the modern church, God lays on your heart to give, then you give. wasn't required. Build this big thing. It's, people saw it as a privilege to give, and they finally had to say, stop giving. We've, you've given too much, but wasn't required, didn't have to. There was a lot of encouragement in terms of what God was going to do in response to it, but was not required. Post-exilic period, the rebuilding of the temple, right? Now the offering was required. You had to. We'll look at a little bit of that, perhaps, if we have time. Then there are all the tithes. If you look at the tithe, and tithe means tenth, as you know, you had some things you couldn't get around. You had to bring the Levitical tithe. Now, a lot of those offerings that you saw, not required, voluntary, building projects, not required, in most cases, sometimes required, Uh, the Levitical tithe was like a tax. You had to do that. You had to bring a tenth of your income to support the 12th tribe, okay? Then you had later in this restatement of the law in Deuteronomy 12, you had another tithe that you had to bring as the offering or the uh, operating expenses for the worship center. And every third year, you've heard me preach on this, I suppose, Deuteronomy 26 said they would collect every third year uh, kind of a social security tax, you know, uh, you know, Medicare, Medi-Cal tax. You, you had to give that, and that was to support those who couldn't support themselves. And by the first century, if you want to keep tracking this, by Matthew 17, we learned under Herod's building project, you had a temple tax, uh, the two drachma tax, which was about two sheep you had to bring, and that was required, uh, the temple tax. In the New Testament, you had required giving. The problem is we never see the tithe repeated, but we see repeatedly the requirement to give to those who teach you, to those who spiritually endow your life, to those that you are accountable to, that you look to as spiritual authorities. You have to give to them. It is a gift to God, and it's given to them and entrusted to them to their stewardship. Can't withhold it, but we never see the tithe repeated. Okay? Now, from that alone, you could say, well, as you purpose in your heart. No, no, that's the other category of giving. Missionary giving, Right? Special projects when there was persecution in the church in Jerusalem, that was voluntary and yet highly encouraged. You had a lot of strongly exhorted but not commanded giving. Even in statements like I read, when you look across the aisle at a brother who's in need, sometimes the statement is, well, how do you love in the love of God in you if you don't give? And yet sometimes you see some language like, well, as you have, as you have opportunity. I mean, that feels pretty optional um, but strongly exhorted. If you look at all of that, what we, re- what we realize is you have the same categories in the New Testament as you had in the Old Testament, and that is required and voluntary. N- necessary, you have to, and, and those that as you're moved to. Okay? Now, a lot of people like to think, well, because you've said the amount is up to you, uh, it's, not, it's however you decide. Well, that's true in that, you know, you, I suppose you can. Here's something that throws a wrench in it. Before the law was ever established, 
when giving was done, say by Abraham, when he comes back from the battle and Melchizedek meets him, the Bible says he gave a tenth of what he had gained from that in the battle. He gave it to Melchizedek, this bizarre figure that shows up, this priest of the Most High God, and gives him a tenth. The tenth was a principle that preceded the Mosaic law, right? that stated in various places as is needed, like the triannual social security tax and the temple uh, operations of the, of the worship center and the Levitical. It's, it's enlisted there. So you got about a 25% you know, percent tax every year that you have to give, plus the required sin offering and a few others. Um, but you never see it restated in the New Testament. Just sat down with a few pastors, I don't know, two months ago and debated this a little bit. And I, I had to concede. You've got a principle overarching that would allow you to say, it makes a lot of sense that in the New Testament, if you're going to instruct new Christians how to give, it would make sense to say, of the required giving that God calls you to give, 10% is probably right. And yet I can't point to chapter and verse in the New Testament. So I'm stuck with looking at special project giving and knowing you got a purpose in your heart, and now I can add all the motivation and encouragement the Bible gives as to why you'd want to give generously. So... I can't say it with the authority of a New Testament verse, uh, as other pastors have challenged me on that, though. I have to concede the principle does supersede uh, the New Testament uh, and even the Mosaic law. Either way, it's more than most Christians give. What should you give? More, right? Why? Because the average Christian, this is an Oxford University study, 2008, so that 22% of those who call themselves Christians give zero all the time. And by the way, this is a self-reporting survey of thousands of people. And self-reporting, I'm thinking I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lie, right? At some point, at least round up, I'm thinking. 22% were gutsy enough just to say, I give nothing ever to the church. 72%, 72% give 2% or less, 72%. Okay, What percentage are giving this 10% that seems to be a pretty good starting point and a principle that started before the Mosaic law was even given. Do you want to guess? 9%. 9% of those who claim the name of Christ give 10, 10% or more. The average giving of Christians in the United States, according to this Oxford University study that was well done, uh, 2.9%, less than 3%. Now, that's um, unfortunately weighted in, in, in the direction of being a positive number because if you look at what's happening in the church, there are a lot of people who don't make a lot that give a decent percentage. As a matter of fact, the richer you are, and this is hard in a county like ours that's wealthy, uh, the richer you are, the stats are in America, the less you give, right? The, le- the, the smaller percentage, significantly so. And the numbers of those who do not give at all, right, goes through the roof. The more money you make, people stop giving. If you want to just bore yourself with numbers, though it's a well-written book, you can read the book by Smith and Emerson, who's co-authored, Oxford University Press, 2008. It was put out. It's called Passing the Plate, and it's worth the read uh, if you are interested in giving trends in America. It doesn't sound like a book you're going to buy, but I threw it out anyway. But endless stats if you're wanting to know what's happening. Why would you want to? I don't even know why I'm recommending this book. No one's going to buy it, but... uh, and it's, it's a bit depressing. So what was my point in all that? My point is this. Uh, it's probably more than, than we're giving now. And if you say, I'm giving 10%, Pastor Mike, you're in, a, you're in, a, in the 9% of, of those who name the name of Christ. Congratulations, that's great. Here's the principle I'd like to throw out. 
what if everybody gave the same percentage you're giving? Would you feel good about it? Let's start there because we all have excuses. I think that would be a great place for us to at least begin and then recognize this, that as you make more money, the Bible's very clear, you should give proportionally. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 16. As God prospers you, you ought to give. It shouldn't be equal gifts, as we often say, but equal sacrifice. Well, I don't have a lot of money. You know, we don't, it's, we're in a recession. Okay, this was a story that came out this year. In October, for Halloween, you know how much Americans spend on costumes? Adults. Oh, I've heard those stats, Pastor Mike. Maybe you haven't heard this one. Do you know what they spend on costumes for their pets? $370 million for pet costumes for October 31st. And we're in a recession, right? Mark 12 is the passage 41 through 44 on the widow's might. Jesus praises her not for the amount that she gives, but for the percentage that she gives. Haggai chapter 1, verses 2 through 11. If you say, I can't afford to give, you need to read that passage very carefully. Haggai chapter 1, we're going to get to it in our daily Bible reading real soon, um, basically says this, you can't afford not to. God will make sure that if you don't do the required giving, God will make sure that you suffer financially. I mean, that's the, that's the, that's the cliff note version of that text. He says, you clothe yourselves, you can't be worn, you earn wages just to put them into bags with holes in it. And you wonder why it's because you're not giving as you ought. The interval, let me just throw this out. And I think we need to be careful about this, especially in Orange County. A lot of people wait till December to give. And I don't have a problem with that necessarily, unless, as a lot of people do, they figure out what they can afford to give, especially the big, big boys, at the end of the year. What does my accountant say? What's my tax guy say? Let's figure out what we can give here in December. Um, according to Proverbs chapter 3, I'm supposed to give the first fruits of the crop, which mean that when the crops come in, I give what's first, which again is the act of trust and risk. I'm risking that the rest of the crop's going to work out. And if you don't give, as we often say, off the top, right, then I'm certainly not in line with the biblical principle. Honor the Lord with your wealth, it says, with the first fruits from all your produce. So even for the big boys out there who like to give in December and only once a year, I'm going to say this, don't do that if what that means is I'm just going to see what will be advantageous for me at the end of the year and what I can afford. When the money comes into your company, to your business, to your income, that's when you need to say, before I know what everything else is going to work out to be, I need to give worried less about the tax implications, though I'm all for that. Well, let's not pay the government more than we have to. But I want to make sure that I'm giving the first fruits, which exercises my trust in God, because the Bible attaches the promise to the first fruits. You give the first fruits of your produce, then your barns will be filled, your vats will be bursting with new wine, or with wine, not new wine. And then he goes on to talk about discipline, which can't be divorced from that context. So the interval, you get paid twice a month like I do, I give twice a month, right? And, and, and off the top, first thing, not at the bottom of the month, not at the bottom of the two weeks, not at the bottom of the year. Although I know that some people have reasons they have to, I mean, some people only pay themselves at the end of the year, I get that. The attitude, 2 Corinthians 9, we don't need to turn there, you know this text, but it says you shouldn't give reluctantly, you shouldn't give under compulsion, but you should give cheerfully. That's a great line. I need to look at my heart. Is it reluctant? Oh, I don't want to do this, okay? And the Bible, like, you know, like Psalm 50, it's not because God doesn't need it so we don't, or if I'm reluctant, then I don't. It's like get over the fact that you think you're helping God out and get over the fact that you're reluctant 
And don't give it with a, with a gun in your back. Oh, I've got to do this, right? You've got to give cheerfully. God loves a cheerful giver. And because of that, he goes on to say in verse 8, he's able to make all grace abound to you, having all sufficiency in all things, so that at all times you can abound in every good work. Good attitude, God loves to be responsive to those with a good attitude. Just like at Christmas time. If I came to your house with a present and I said, here's a present because I know I have to give it to you, that would kind of ruin the moment, wouldn't it? God doesn't like that either, right? Can you imagine that on a birthday? Happy birthday, here's the gift I am required to give you. Uh, that's what our, you know, God sees our heart. Don't give like that. Lastly, beware money's hazards. It's intoxicating, you know that. And the reason that we have a problem with that last list of reasons how to give to the church is because we have a problem with our relationship with money. A lot of us do. And, and unfortunately, some of you are intoxicated by it. Let's do a look at this text, please. Ecclesiastes 5, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Why don't you jot that down? Intoxicating. Now, we all have to deal with it. It's like alcohol. Alcohol is intoxicating. The good news is I don't have to deal with it if I choose not to. Money, I got to, you know, my bank's not taking sermons for my mortgage, so I got I, I to give them money. So I have to have money. I have to deal with money in my life, and I got to be careful. It's as though I had to drink alcohol. I'd have to be super careful because it's addictive and it's intoxicating. So with money, I got to be careful because I have to live in a world of money, unfortunately. Verse 10, if you fall in love with it, you're never going to be satisfied with it. This is Ecclesiastes 5.10. Are you with me on this? He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. Never be happy with what you're getting paid. Ever. If you love your wealth. This is vanity. It's also vanity. You've been talking about all kinds of things that were vanity. That's vanity too. Then he says, when goods increase, if you're in love with money, this is what you don't recognize. Perhaps you do after a while when you, you know, walk out of your inebriated state. So do they who consume them, right? They increase who eat them. What advantage has the owner but to see them with his eyes, right? Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Sometimes there's not a lot of peace that comes with that. You're wanting more, and then there's the hangover, so to speak. Verse 13, there is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his own hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. He can't give him anything. He came from his mother's womb, and he shall go again, naked as he came. And it shall, he shall take nothing. This is what Paul's quoting in 1 Timothy 6, right? This passage from Ecclesiastes. And he shall take nothing for his, for, for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Can't take it with you. Verse 16. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. Right? That makes our work seem really for nothing. What gain is there to him who toils for the wind? That's why Jesus said there's much better riches to invest in. Moreover, verse 17, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Certainly, if you're intoxicated with it, that's what you're like, always trying to get more. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. That's a long definition of contentment. I'm fine. I got a job. I'm going to do it. going to eat whatever I get, whatever I eat. Great. Taco Bell, Ruth, Chris, doesn't matter. Just be content. Verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, that's someone who's not intoxicated with them, and to accept his lot, whether it's a lot or little, he's always wanting to increase his lot, and to rejoice in his toil, he's happy in his work. This is the gift of God. Love that verse. For he will not much remember the days of his life. He's not sweating, watching the ticker tape on you know, CNBC every day because he keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. That's a great text. And for people in a culture that are intoxicated with wealth, it's good to recognize there's sobriety available for you if you recognize the intoxicating power of money. 
The other problem you need to understand is that it's always going to want preeminence. It's going to want to be first in your life. Luke chapter 16 talks about this. Let me just read a few key texts here in this lengthy passage if you want to look this up later. This is about the shrewd servant who keeps taking the bill and marking it down. Remember that? And he's praised for his shrewdness. Well, his principle is this at the bottom of this parable. He says, I tell you, says to his disciples, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. In other words, take your money, think about eternal goals, use your money for eternal goals. That would be good because if your money is used to make friends, right, whether it's the relationship you build by showing that you value people more than you value your money, whatever it is, whether it's giving, the, the, the point is you now can do something that's eternally important and you can meet those people up on the other side from your eternal dig, uh, dwellings, digs. Verse 10, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. The one who is dishonest in a very little is dishonest in much. If then you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, right, then who's going to entrust you with true riches? That's what we want because that lasts. He says, if you've not been faithful, which is, not, which is another's, right, with God's, who's going to give you what's your own? No servant can serve two masters. You're either going to hate the one and love the other. Or you're going to be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, and it's always going to want to dominate. And so you've got to say, one, one of the reasons we have problems with money and we don't like the preacher talking about it, we don't like the topic, we don't like to bring it up, is because we have a problem. It's become far too important in our lives and perhaps has become your master and you live to serve it. I suppose that's overlapping the intoxication of it all. Notice this too. Money, unfortunately, can kill your spiritual life. It can kill interest in Christ. The parable of the soils, remember that? One verse so good as he describes the thorns, the seed among the thorns. He says, the, for what's sown among the thorns is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves itself to be unfaithful. There's no fruit in that. You want to kill your spiritual life, just mess around with the intoxicating power of money. Set your sights on that. Allow it to have preeminence in your life. And not only will you not give, you're going to find your interest in Christ tank. Lastly, let me say this, makes a lousy God. We already saw there in 1 Timothy 6, it's uncertain. But let me read you this passage, Proverbs 23. I guess since we got a minute, let's turn to it. Proverbs 23. We set our hope in money. The Bible says that's a bad way to go. You better set your hope on God. You better live for him. He ought to be the master, not your money. But look at this very insightful observation about people that love money and your interaction with them. Proverbs 23.1 says, when you sit down to eat with a ruler, they're usually rich people, observe carefully what's before you. Think carefully, be careful, and put a knife to your own throat here. Now, that's not literal, obviously. That would be an odd way to have dinner. But he says, do that in your own mind with your own self-discipline if you're given right, to appetite, if you're real, if you want to devour it all. In other words, verse 3, do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. I mean, we've got to be careful. Some of the magazines that you subscribe to, ladies in particular, it seems, and, you know, guys, when we're looking at the cars, you know, this nice car, be careful. Those are the kinds of ways that this intoxication and this preeminence starts to take place. And he says, when you're around all that, be careful. Govern your appetite, right? Don't desire that stuff. This is deceptive. And do not toil now to acquire it. Don't toil to acquire wealth. Don't make this your end goal. Right? Be discerning enough to desist. Guard yourself. Don't do it. Stop. Why? Because if you make it your goal, look what it says here. It says, when your eyes light on it, it's gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward the heaven. 
you know, here's the thing about God. Draw near to God, James says, and he'll draw near to you. You want to cozy up to money. You want to make that your end all, your security, your pleasure, your fulfillment. You want, that'll just make me content. If I just had more money, bigger house, better car, whatever, just recognize it makes a lousy God because it keeps scooting away from you, right? Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. The health of our church, right, really relies in part on our generosity and our sacrificial hearts, which can, uh, you know, obviously be measured by our involvement in ministry, but one of the clearest ways to diagnose our hearts in this regard is our relationship with money. And, of course, the church is going to be healthy as the church's people are healthy. So with that, we wrap up our 12 weeks. Let's pray together. God, I know this topic something we can't avoid. We're all going to have to go home and maybe not tonight, but sometime soon and pay some bills, do some online banking, think through our savings, replace tires on our car, figure out if we have enough money to paint the house. Uh, we're going to have to deal with money. And every time we uh, think about our church, if we're, I mean, have any training at all in the Christian life, we know we've got to put money in that offering till we've got to give. And we want to do that with the right heart. We want to understand what it means to give in a way that reflects the character of God, understanding that when we write those checks or transfer that money or have that deducted from our account, there's uh, money that we can't use to do things in life we need done or want done. We don't want to start playing games with you and start to, to give to get. We don't want to think we can move you to do anything to us spiritually or, or salvifically. We certainly don't want to think that uh, church is reliant on my giving. Uh, you can do whatever you want with the wealth of this world, but you want us to give in a way that reflects the heart of God, a, a God that you have revealed yourself to be in the Bible, a God who, uh, who gives, lays down his life, and as the Bible often does, turning from that very simple illustration of the death of Christ on the cross to what we're going to do with the values that we possess, which certainly isn't divinity. We can't lay our divinity down, but God, we certainly can take a look at our income and figure that out. God, we didn't even address some of the issues we're going to have to address, I suppose, at some point in the future, maybe in a practical class. But because of our love of money, a lot of people in this room, I can assume, have gotten themselves into financial trouble, become, as Proverbs says, a slave to the lender. They got credit cards they can't pay off. They've racked up debt they can't afford to have. They're driving cars they can't afford. They're in, in, in a house payment they, they can't pay for. And God, they're, they're making it worse every month. So I pray that even in a practical ways, our church can help put together some simple classes, and even just the counseling I know that's available and takes place all the time in our pastoral offices to try and help get income and expenses to line up the way they ought to biblically. And that's going to mean we break with our society that always wants us to have bigger and better stuff. We've got to live within our means. Help us to do that. And then, God, some of the financial problems based on the fact that we're not doing what we should do. We're not diligent. Uh, help us to be diligent, God. We don't want to be, as Paul said to the Thessalonians, the busybodies that go around uh, trying to live off of other people when we should be doing our own work. So God, help us. So many matters intersect this topic of money, but it's an important one to the church because our church cannot be healthy if our families are saddled with debt, if our love really is not for the kingdom and eternal things. It's for uh, you know the bigger Orange County house and having a nicer car or whatever it might be. Help us in our hearts to have you reigning as Lord and King. We don't want to serve money. We want to serve you. And then, God, we want to, as those great words from Ecclesiastes put it, we just want to be content with our work and content with our food, and we want to enjoy life the way we should, serving you, loving each other, advancing the kingdom, and be preoccupied with 
with just everyday joy and, and, and worship and thanksgiving, not toiling and dreading and, and filled with consternation and frustration. So do that. We know it's a gift from you. Provide that for us, God, as we're diligent to do what we should. Thanks, God, for the last 12 weeks, the last 12 sessions, a chance for us to look at all these different aspects, so varied and broad, but uh, important composite to, to build this mosaic, this picture of what the church is and what you say about it and how these topics make the church what it should be. Thanks for this team who've been faithful to be here for week after week and pray that they would be edified because of our teaching here over the last uh, semester in Jesus' name. Amen.